0: podcast number 42 for Thanks for Your Service. Our focus is on historical topics relating to the Australian military. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter. Just search for Thanks for Your Service. Our website is www.thanksforyourservice.net and you can email us at info at We had the pleasure of having David Sutton, Senior War Historian at the Australian War Memorial, join us in podcast 26 to talk about the Australian involvement in the Russian Civil War. For today's podcast, David joins us again as we learn about Australia's involvement in battles with the forces of Vichy France in World War II. And joining us on the line from Canberra is David Sutton, a senior war historian at the Australian War Memorial. David, many thanks again for joining us.
1: Uh, great to be speaking with you
0: now we last spoke to you in november 2019 when we learned about australia's involvement in the russian civil war in our podcast number 26 but for this podcast we're going to head to 1941 and learn about the australian involvement in the british operation exporter can you set the scene for us
1: yeah, sure. So this is a, um, you might say, an understudied but really important campaign for Australia. It happened uh, in June and July 1941. Uh, so this is the the invasion of uh, Syria and Lebanon. And this is actually a really interesting campaign because it's Australians in conjunction with British and Indian forces uh, invading territory that's held by the Vichy French. So at the fall of France in 1940, um, Germany took over France. Um, the Germans divided that country into two halves. Basically, the the Atlantic coast and the north half was under direct German military occupation. The rest of the country was put under what you might call a puppet government um, based in the city of Vichy, and that's known as Vichy France. And one of the interesting things about that is that the Vichy French were allowed to keep control of France's territory, so in places like Indochina and parts of Africa and Syria and Lebanon, which they'd held since 1923 after a deal that the French cut with the British. Now, this didn't really sit too well with uh, the British that, you know, this Vichy government, which was we technically neutral, but obviously was in Germany's pocket, controlled this territory so close to Palestine, so close to the Suez Canal. So things really started kicking off in 1941, where there a series of events that, that essentially led the British to enact an invasion of that territory. So that involved things like an anti-British revolt in Iraq. Um, and the Vichy French actually allowed the Germans to use airfields in Syria and Lebanon to supply that revolt. Um, And things like that got the the British really spooked. They're also worried that the Germans might come and occupy Syria and Lebanon, which then creates a really great springboard uh, from where they can attack Palestine or bomb the Suez Canal. Um, You know, and you think about it at the time, the British are really stretched across North Africa. They've got forces besieged at Tobruk. They have um, just had a huge loss in, uh, you know, Greece and Syria um, in Greece and Crete. Um, and these are places where, you know, a lot of Australians are involved and suddenly there's this new threat that things might come in and, and and you know get in the way in Syria and Lebanon. So after a bit of time they decide to go ahead with this invasion. And what you end up having is a huge three pronged invasion of Syria and Lebanon. Um, the main part of that striking force are, are Australians. So there's there's three parts of the invasion. Along the coast, you've got the Australian twenty first brigade, they're basically heading up from the border of um, Palestine and Lebanon, heading up along the coast towards Beirut. Once taking Beirut, they then will then push up to Tripoli, and then further inland you have um, the 25th Brigade. So there's all part of the 7th Division that's heading up to this important rail and um, air hub at Raya. Um, they'll take that and then push north to Homs. And on the right, you've got a combined force of British and Free French uh, forces. So the British uh, combination of British and Indian troops. Uh, The Free French are those French forces that didn't want to, you know, um, make peace with the Germans, that didn't want to join Vichy. So these are the ones under control of people like Charles de Gaulle. They're going to push up and take Damascus, and then from there push up to Palmyra, those famous ancient ruins in in Syria.
0: You said that uh, that there were elements of the 7th Australian Division. What had they been doing before this?
1: Uh, Well, they were actually... uh, The 18th uh, Brigade was currently... Besieged at Tobruk when this this began. Uh, The rest were untested. This was their first use in battle. Um, It was a huge undertaking for this group. They were called the Deep Thinkers, uh, this division, because they were the ones who hadn't signed up and joined the 6th Division. Um, And yet they're being used in what turned out to be a really difficult campaign. One of the interesting things about this campaign is that the British entered into it thinking that it was going to be an absolute walkover. Um, There are a few reasons for this. They just thought the Vichy French weren't their hearts wouldn't be in it. They they wouldn't want to fight too hard. They wouldn't be too up against fighting the British because you know they'd just been defeated by Germany. And part of the reason for that is because people like Charles de Gaulle, that free French leader, he really pushed this idea. That, you know, all they needed to do was get walk into the country and they could win by almost by propaganda alone. The reason he was doing this is he had these grand ambitions to take on the Germans and, and win back France, but he didn't really have an army. But he really wanted to get that army that was in Syria and Lebanon and use that so he lobbied Churchill really hard saying oh this will be an easy victory we can just send in our troops I'll get an army you'll neutralize the threat in Syria and Lebanon and you know they really expected this campaign might just take a couple of days to get up to Beirut or Damascus and places like that Australians were even asked to go into battle uh, wearing their slouch hats rather than helmets because they thought that the Vichy French defenders might see the slouch hats and be reminded of Australia's role in the First World War and not attack them. <laughs> um, within you know hours of the beginning of the campaign, as bullets and mortars were raining down upon them, the Australians swiftly took up their slouch hats and put on their helmets. But it does talk about, uh, give us an idea of the way that the command was thinking about this campaign and how it was going to run.
0: So it, it wasn't a walkover, as, as de Gaulle had uh, proposed to, to Churchill. So how long did the campaign take?
1: It ended up taking about five weeks, um, much longer than expected. And it actually involved those three forces that I talked about. So the 21st Brigade, the 25th Brigade, and then that combined Free French and 5th Indian Brigade. Um, that actually was just the beginning of the introduction of quite quite significant resources to bring into this campaign. The Vichy French put up quite a strong resistance. They, they'd they been in the, the territory for a long time. They knew the terrain well. They'd marked out artillery sites really well. There's a lot of... Um, they used the natural defences really well, like the rivers and valleys and, and things like that, just to make it incredibly difficult. Um, and, you know, the British needed to end up bringing in the 6th Division as well as the 10th Indian Division under William Slim in order to um, finally get it over the line. So it was a lot more difficult than they'd really thought. Um, and a lot longer than they thought, and it came at quite a heavy cost to the, to the Allies.
0: So what went well during the campaign, and what didn't go well?
1: I'll start with the, the things that didn't really go well. Um, you could almost say it was the, the planning from the beginning that didn't really go well. Talked, I mentioned before the, uh, the belief that it would be an easy campaign, and that led to a few, I guess, a series of cascading errors which affected the ability of the Allies to fight First of all, the Allies had no heavy tanks at all. Um, They just had things like universal carriers or Bren carriers, Uh, whereas the French had R-35 Renault tanks, which weren't the best tank of the war, but they were far more effective than anything the Allies had. Um, They also didn't have enough resources in the way of mortars and radios and things like that. And that's because the entire campaign, there was this prioritisation of what was going on in North Africa. Uh, Waver was ordered to draw up the plans for this campaign by Churchill, but not to draw any resources away from elsewhere, so they scraped together these forces. They didn't bring any tanks over from uh, places like the Operation Battleaxe, which was an attempt to, you know, the attempt to save the people besieged in Tobruk. So the, the from the very beginning, they're under resourced. Also, the the plan for the invasion was just deeply flawed from the beginning. Um, the geography of the region is really dictates the way that anyone is going <laughs> to invade Syria or Lebanon. Um, and that's been true since antiquity. We have ancient accounts of battles where people follow the same kind of path that the Allies are following in 1941. So you have this one column going up the coast, and they're really hemmed into the coast because the mountains are so steep where they hit the Mediterranean. Further inland... Again, there's these two giant mountain ranges in, in Lebanon. There's the Lebanon Mountains and the Anti-Lebanon Mountains, and they create a giant valley. So if you're going to attack, you have to go along that valley. The Vichy French knew that very well. They knew the roads well. They knew the rivers well. And so that really dictated the course of that invasion. In the east, you have these uh, you know, flat deserts uh, of Syria that we might be more familiar with, um, which, you know, it's a bit easier to move along that ground. But they're hemmed in by rocky outcrops like the General Druze in the east. And the mountains in the west, the ways that it's possible to invade north into Syria and Lebanon are kind of marked out by geography. So this means that anyone who's trying to invade that area has a series of choices to make. Now, I know there's a lot of armchair generals out there, and this was true at the time and, and now, who said that perhaps the Allies should have just picked one of these three axes, really focused on that, and let that be the main course of the invasion so that it could be overwhelming. So just push for Damascus or just push for Beirut. But what they actually did was kind of put even forces on all three. And, you know, the the point being that I guess that evened out the amount of forces, that it meant that none of them was quite strong enough to completely overwhelm the French defenders. Um, and that really put them kind of on the back foot from the start. And it did mean that there needed to be a lot of reallocation of forces and injection of new forces as the campaign wore on. And it became increasingly obvious that the French weren't going to roll over like they expected to.
0: One of the prongs so, of the attack was along the coast of the Mediterranean north from Akra and Haifa up to to Beirut. And this became what was known as the Battle of Beirut. But in the end, they didn't have to battle for Beirut. So what happened there?
1: Yeah, so they were originally intended to... So this is Brigadier Jack Stevens, 21st Brigade, um, which at the time, the beginning of the invasion, it's composed of the 2nd 27th, the 2nd 16th and the 2nd 14th Battalions, including um, cavalry as well. That's a combination of the 6th and 9th Division cavalry and a few British units as well. So they're pushing up the coast. Along the way, they've had a few a series of really difficult battles. Um, uh, on the second day of the campaign, um, they had this really terrible crossing of the Latani River. The second 16th, 16th Battalion got pinned down at the kind of the mouth of that river. They had inflating fire coming in from the from the field, um, the, from the mountains around that, and it was a really costly battle. Incredible bravery shown by that battalion as they did that, including a, a group that crossed the river in a in a, in a boat under fire just to try and create that bridgehead. And as they push forward, they have a series of other battles, but they do reach a place called Damour, just on the very outskirts of Beirut. Um, That's sometimes known as kind of the Battle of Beirut, but it is just a bit further south. Um, This is an an, an incredible battle because by by this point in the campaign, so this is from the 6th until the 9th of July, the injection of other British units and Indian units um, further... East allowed the entire 7th Division, Australian 7th Division, to concentrate on the coast. So they're poised south of Beirut. They've got an enormous concentration of artillery, and then they push north to to take that last line of Vichy defence. And it's a really hard-fought battle. Right along the coast, you have um, Australian units pushing through the coastal plains, where there's a series of orchards and things heading up towards Damor. Further inland, there's really heavy fighting in the hills, where Australians are having to clamber down these incredibly steep valley sides on their, on their backsides just to be able to get down and then climb up these huge cliffs to to then fight the enemy. Once this happens, this Battle of D'Amour happens, Henri uh, Gens, the Vichy French commander, he can see that the, the campaign's over and he, he then contacts uh, an American diplomat in the area to to sue for peace. So that's the final piece in this really complex jigsaw puzzle which finally leads to the French, the French uh, to, to call it quits, but it, it's a, a you know almost a month after what was expected and, and a really heavy battle that happened there. In fact, during that battle, the 2nd 16th Battalion, who were charged with attacking a really strongly defended part of the French line at the El Atika Ridge, um, they were so undermanned by this point, but um, they still made this attack on this really heavily defended French position. After the war, uh, the French had estimated that they'd been attacked by what they thought was about four battalions. Um, in reality, the 2nd sec- 16th had 263 men in that battle. So a really amazing effort by them, and it shows how depleted they were, but I guess how well they they um, applied themselves in, in really difficult circumstances.
0: Not only did this campaign have elements, obviously, of the 7th Division, so the Army, Australian Army, but also the RAAF and the Royal Australian Navy had some involvement, is that right?
1: That's right. So the the Navy contribution, uh, there are a few Australian ships involved um, and they were included in the 15th Cruiser Squadron. Uh, They were actually mostly British, British ships, but there were a few Australian ships and one Kiwi ship, HMNZS Leander was in there as well. Basically what they're doing is putting a blockade along the Lebanese coast to ensure that the Vichy French can't bring any reinforcements in. Um, and they're very successful at doing that. They also provide um, bombardment um, in some of those coastal battles, such as the Battle of Dumont, um the Battle of the Latani and places like that, just trying to overwhelm those Vichy defences along the shore. And they, they're quite uh, successful. They take down um, and stop a few attempts by the Vichy French to bring in reinforcements. and also sink a French submarine uh, during the campaign.
0: In the air,
1: it's a really interesting dynamic because... At the beginning of their campaign on land, the, the size of the Allied army and the Vichy army are roughly the same. Um, and it's only after time that the army, the Allies are able to bring in more supplies and overwhelm the French. In the air, from the very beginning, the Vichy French had super, air superiority. So at the beginning of the campaign, the Allies only had about 70 aircraft. Um, a bit of a dizzying array of aircraft from a whole bunch of units, but the bulk of them uh, for 80 squadron RAF, they're flying hurricanes and three squadron um, are AAF, they're flying Tomahawks. But there are also things like Blenheims and uh, Whitley's and and any other aircraft that all form part of this, this complex uh, campaign that's going on. The Vichy French have far more, they only have about double the amount of aircraft, um, including some really good fighters um, that that they're able to use. Um, But what the Allies did, knowing that they didn't have superiority to be able to necessarily take on the Vichy air force in the air, they concentrated on bombing those air assets on the ground. So even as there's really heavy, heavy fighting going on at places like Palmyra, where British and Indian forces are getting absolutely dominated by the Allied by the Vichy air force and, and are really decimated by those constant attacks, um, the Allied air force are focusing on bombing those Vichy air bases, and that's quite vital because they knock out a lot of Vichy aircraft on the ground. They knock out some of those airfields, and the Vichy French have to keep moving their air assets further and further away from the front, which has a real direct impact on their ability to use that air superiority to their advantage. Interestingly, um, in 80 Squadron RAF was uh, Roald Darley, uh, who was flying on those hurricanes and took part in some of these battles, that famous author.
0: This campaign also saw two Australians, one of those who people may know very well about, actually getting awarded uh, Victoria Crosses.
1: That's right. Uh, there were the only two Victoria Crosses awarded uh, to anyone in the campaign. One was to uh, uh, Lieutenant Roden Cutler, who some people might remember as the later being Governor of New South Wales. So he was an observer for the 2nd 5th Field Regiment. Really interesting, uh, his VC his because he he's awarded it for exemplary action and, and service over quite a long period of time. So it begins kind of on the 19th of June during this quite heavy fighting at a place called Merjayoun, which is an old crusader fort um, in that central column of the attack, which had been taken by the Allies but then lost in a Vichy French counterattack. And then there's a series of disastrous attempts to try and retake that, including on the 17th of June, where two companies of the 2nd, 2nd Pioneer Battalion are Really decimated by a, um, a, a, an Ill, Ill designed attack that didn't have any proper support against this really formidable fortress. A few days later, um, Roden Tutler is there. He's an observer for the 2nd Fifth Field Regiment. Um, and throughout the day, he's done just kind of a big series of things. He's been mending telephone lines under fire, which are really important for maintaining that connection in order to direct artillery. Um, Single handedly he's seen up a couple of attacks by commandeering various guns. At one point, he had to actually hide in a drain pipe while the Vichy French are standing just a couple of metres away, um, hoping that one of the telephone that he's got with him doesn't ring. Um, and then he had to sneak back to his lines, um, hoping that then he wouldn't be shot by his own forces by you know, thinking that he was a Vichy French soldier. Um, a few days later, he's, uh, a place called de bel he's again directing artillery under fire and doing a really incredible job of it. And then during the Battle of D'Amour, that's that battle just south of Beirut, uh, on the 6th of July, he, he single-handedly takes eight prisoners of war from a series of French machine gun posts. Again, he's mending uh, phone wires under fire. Uh, and then he's actually wounded in the battle, um, and he, he basically lay on the battlefield for a day until he could be finally brought out, um, by which point the wound in his leg become septic, and he had to have that amputated. And that was amputated just nearby, while the, the field hospital he's in is essentially under Vichy French fire. Um, so he's awarded that VC for just exemplary service over a really long time. Um, And a really incredible given, he he was a really young man at the time. Um, The other Victoria Cross is Private Jim Gordon. Um, So right towards the end of the campaign on the 10th of July, 1941, he's involved in an attack on a place called the Dadrani Heights. This is um, a bit further inland, kind of adjacent to the Battle of D'Amore, where they're trying to take these heights, which is a good place where the Vichy French can observe and direct artillery and things like that. his platoon's pinned down by really heavy Vichy French machine gun fire. And they're kind of lying there for a bit. They can't move. And then uh, kind of, you know, what we hear is that occasionally, uh, apparently just suddenly you hit. Hear, they heard Jim Gordon say, oh, I'm done with this. Let's get out of here. And he basically stood up single-handedly, charged the enemy and bayoneted four of them, k- killed all of them. Um, so single-handedly allowed his platoon to then continue the attack. Um, there's actually a really interesting and famous painting of him done by William Dargie that we have in the Australian War Memorial's collection. Um, apparently, as, they were, as he was being painted for that portrait, uh, he, his hands started shaking, and the artist William Dargie he thought he'd had him in his post too long, and his hands were shaking because he was you know, getting sore. And he said, "Oh, sorry, if you want to take a pause so you can you know, rest and just change your posture." And he said, "Oh, no, don't worry. I always get like this when I think of that action." So he was a man who was quite affected by his service. Goodness.
0: What was next to the Australian 7th Division after this campaign?
1: So uh, Australian Troops in general um, stayed on in Syria and Lebanon for a while doing garrison duties, basically until the end of the year, not just the 7th Division. Um, Then, of course, uh, after Pearl Harbour and Japanese entered the war, the Japanese entered the war, uh, the 7th Division go off and do incredible things in New Guinea uh, and in the Pacific. So... And that's part of the reason that this division sometimes called the Silent Seventh. They, they often feel that they're, some of their exploits were forgotten. Um, Syria-Lebanon is a classic example of that. Um, what they did in Syria-Lebanon was a really hard-fought campaign in incredibly difficult terrain. And yet, they're probably more well-known for things that they did in the Pacific. And of course, those things they, that they did in the Pacific are amazing and important. But there's a sense that this is something of a forgotten campaign. And certainly, a lot of the veterans felt that. Um, we do know that there was a sense of frustration, that there was always more focus on other battles elsewhere. Um, Some felt that perhaps people like Churchill and other politicians tried to downplay the Syria-Lebanon campaign because they wanted to, you know, coax the French into being seen as friends. So it was too confusing to have Australia fighting against the Vichy French. So the campaign wasn't really talked about. And so that focus then shifts to what they do in the Pacific. But this is where they cut their teeth. And we have a kind of a typical view of the part of the world they're fighting as being flat, desert country. But that's just not true of Lebanon. Lebanon is really a man out the country. And the, um, yeah, sometimes you see veterans who served in both the Pacific and, and in Lebanon talking about having to climb these hills. And sure, it mightn't have been as, um, as humid, of course, as the Pacific, but the precipitous hills and the climbing and the, you know, the walking through, through rivers and through rivers, all these things can you know, have an application to what they do later on in the war.
0: And, and the 7th Division, I mean, their contribution is not insignificant. They had over 1,500 casualties, but it really is a campaign that we just don't hear a lot about, do we?
1: No, it's not a campaign we hear a lot about. And I guess it's it's a lot of it's to do with the timing. You know, we have Australians besieged at Tobruk. We've just had the huge losses in Greece and Crete, um, then smack bang in the middle of the campaign on the 22nd of June 1941, Hitler invades the Soviet Union, and all the headlines are from around the world suddenly are am focusing on this fight between the British and Australians and Indians against the East and French in Syria, but, of course, that huge campaign that's going on in Russia. So from a dip- number of different angles, the, the oxygen is just relatively taken out of this campaign. And that was a real sense of frustration for, for a lot of veterans. Um, there, there is no specific... Well, there was no specific medal for for Syria, Lebanon. Uh, in fact, if you serve in that campaign, you've got the Africa Star. So, again, that was a real point of contention. A few veterans felt that there should have been a serious start or something like that, and that never came to be.
0: David, I understand that you've actually written a book on this campaign and it's due to be published next year. Can you tell us a little about that? Yeah, sure. It's um, It's been a really great little project
1: for me to be working on, um, something of a, a, a bit of a... Uh, A labor of love for me because I do think this is such an interesting and um, underrepresented campaign. So I've written, a uh, some of you might be familiar with Osprey campaign books. Um, These are books that have been coming out for years that are really great little kind of 100-page summaries of um, campaigns and battles and things like that. And so I've written one for Osprey about the Syria Lebanon campaign. Uh, And it's been really interesting because one thing I've noticed when I was researching this campaign is that there aren't too many books about it. It's really well covered in the official history and Gavin Long's um, volume of that. Uh, but a lot of the books that do exist tend to focus on one side. So there's a couple of books that just focus on the Australian side of things. There's one that just focuses on the French. Um, there is a, an official history of the, the Indian Armed Forces, which which focuses on the Indian. What I've been able to do is try and knit together all those different bits and pieces and try and that holistic story so i really wanted to make sure that it jumps around between what's happening for the australians on the coast and the indians in the desert um and and all those different factors that came together to, to make this campaign what it was so a really fun little project to work on but um also uh, a really humbling project to work on you know more than two thousand people died in this campaign including 416 australians um and to do my bit to be able to bring that to the public and and get some better understanding of this campaign has been something that's been really, really worth it.
0: What's the book called, and when is it released?
1: Uh, It's called uh, Operation Exporter, uh, the Allied Fight Against the Vichy French, and it's coming out on the 15th of February 2022.
0: And where can people grab a copy?
1: Uh, It's actually available in in a lot of uh, all-good bookstores, so places like, I know Dimix are selling it, but your best bet is to... Um, jump online and it's, it's already being sold for pre-order on um, Amazon and places like that and there is also available for Kindle at, at a cheaper price so if you're interested you can pre-order now.
0: And we'll be looking forward to reading that from February next year. That well, was a fascinating insight into what the British called Operation Exporter and our involvement and really uh, like we said that uh, a lot of people don't know about it but uh Again, thank you for your time today. It was a pleasure. That's the podcast for today. You can find the relevant links for this podcast on our Facebook page, and we'll keep you posted on David's book. We're keen to hear your feedback. Leave a comment on our Facebook page, and if you're listening to us via iTunes or other podcast apps, please leave a review. You can help support this podcast via Patreon or Buy Me a Coffee. The links are on our Facebook page and our website. Your support helps us with the production of this podcast. Thanks for listening.